No, they don't. <laughs> That's so naive. But you wouldn't know that they don't because you wouldn't... No, they're supposed to be there. Yeah. But now you know. Um, I mean, you would know from roommates and stuff. Do they all go for the first three weeks before <coughs> too much work stops them? I don't know. Maybe we're weird, but we all come to class. <laughs> it's so strange. Um, is your hand up? No. no. <laughs> okay. Um, so what are we thinking of Don Juan? Uh-huh. Um, what you were expecting? More funny than I was expecting. Yeah, so is that good? Yeah. Did that make you happy? <laughs> yeah, you felt that way too, Barbara? <laughs> All right. What are those points? Um, I didn't highlight them, but it was just like when they were like describing like the Don Jose and uh-huh. um, just like how he was like not as good as uh, Donna I know. And I was just I was like, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> and his mistresses, but one will do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> what about the difference between having a husband of 50 or what, the, what you might prefer? You don't remember that? Um, he, the narrator, thinks it might be better to have two guys who are 5 and 20 each um, than one guy who's 50. Um, <laughs> are you shocked? You're not sure you agree. <laughs> um, all right, did everyone, so everyone read the dedication to Savi and the two, and you like that? You're nodding appreciatively. It was harsh, yeah. He actually didn't publish it. Um, uh, what, did you read that? Did you read the note? Do you know this? Um, he, because as was pretty much the custom at the time, um, Don June was published anonymously. That is, it's just, that's how you published. Um, and um, the, there are various reasons for that, but mainly that was just standard. And um, people would know who an author was. It's not as though um, there was anything secret or hidden about it. It was simply the case that what you did was was published books and the author allegedly in some sense didn't matter, although of course the author did matter and knowing um, who wrote stuff was something that, that everyone knew. Um, not everyone published anonymously, not everyone um, uh, published all their works anonymously, but Don Juan was published anonymously. Um, I think there might be... Uh, no, there isn't. I was hoping there was a um, reproduction of the title page in this version. Um, but often it would say something like, um, although I don't think it does do this with Don Juan, it would say something like, Don Juan by the author of Child Harold. Um, and then people would know it was Byron, even though it didn't say Byron um, in either case. Um, so, he, so he wrote the preface, um, or the dedication to Savi. Um, remember, Sadi is the person who was so scandalized that Shelley said he was going to hell, to L'Enfer. So he wrote the preface, he wrote the dedication, but then decided not to publish it because he thought that um, attacking someone that strongly, anonymously, um, as he was doing, even if the anonymity was, you know, just just um, uh, notional or de jure, 
would be the kind of thing Southey would do, but not the kind of thing he would do. Um, so he didn't put that part in, um, and it was only published after his death. But it's pretty great. And it's also worth reading, um, worth noticing, just because it gives you his sense, A, of um, the Lake Poets, Southey, Wordsworth, and Coleridge, at least what they were like in 1818 or so. Um, and then also um, his sense of Milton and the difference between what Milton was like compared to um, what um, he thought had happened to Coleridge and Wordsworth. So do you remember what he says about Coleridge? Anyone um, have any recollection? No. Oh, like, mm, no, there was. That he was obscure. Um, that he was explaining metaphysics to the nation. Um, and then. I wish he would explain his explanation. Um, yeah, so here's Coleridge, who's. Um, what Coleridge was doing was writing a lot of prose, translating German philosophy, um, often plagiarizing German philosophy. That is, Coleridge published some stuff that was pure translation. Um, from German philosophy, and he was making all sorts of metaphysical claims. If you take um, a course in the early Romantics, or if you take a course in Coleridge, he's great. Um, he's very famous. Um, his most famous prose work is the Biographia Literaria, which is a kind of biography and autobiography of his own um, relation to literature. And in it, he talks about Wordsworth. He talks about himself. He says some extraordinary things. Most famous, perhaps, is his distinction between what he calls fancy and imagination. And um, the Biographia Literaria is a very strong pay-on to the creative imagination, to the idea of the imagination as creative rather than simply as um, putting together things, images that you already have, which is what fancy does. Um, so it's a great book, but some of it's plagiarized, and a lot of it is um, very high metaphysics. And he talks about, and there are other works by him that are also high metaphysics. So Byron is not really interested in this, um, and essentially is saying Coleridge is unreadable. Then Wordsworth has just published The Excursion, which is his long and pretty awful narrative poem. Um, that he wrote in the teens. So um, when, if you take an early romantics class, if you do Wordsworth, the excursion is not what you would read. Um, Wordsworth by then is writing in such a way that Shelley will write that poem to Wordsworth. He wrote it when he read the excursion. Um, Keats, when the excursion came out, he quite liked it for a while, but then he thought, no, actually, this is no good. Um, and no one now thinks The Excursion is any good. There are some good moments in it, but it's basically a book length. Um, remember how long Byron says it is? 500 Yeah, I think the quarter holds 500 pages. So it's a 500-page book length narrative um, of not very interesting on the whole philosophical dialogue um, between various... Um, figures who represent ways of being um, part of the natural landscape of England. So um, the, when it came out, 
everyone who loved Wordsworth, the younger romantics who all loved Wordsworth, were very excited to read it. And Mary Shelley describes in her journal um, being with Percy Shelley in a gondola, reading the excursion aloud to each other um, in Venice, um, with growing disbelief. And finally, her verdict on Wordsworth when they read the excursion was, he has become a slave. Um, so Percy Shelley's poem, Two Wordsworth, is actually mild by comparison to what they felt and what they said in their private conversations, that Wordsworth had become a slave. So Byron is disgusted by what's happened to Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, that disgust is... Um, maybe a little bit strong, but it's also very, very funny. I should also say that Byron was, um, because he was the most popular poet of the time, where being a popular poet was being the most popular writer. That is, it wasn't like today where if you're the most popular poet, that's nothing compared to being the most popular novelist. Um, being the most popular novelist was not being the most popular writer um, really until the Victorian era. So Byron was the most popular writer of his age, and he had a lot of sway with publishers. And he actually helped um, Coleridge get some stuff published when Coleridge was dithering about it. And Byron interceded between his own publisher and Coleridge and did various things and was very helpful to Coleridge. So this isn't personal animus. And um, it's more disappointment. Um, Wordsworth and um, Coleridge were as Shelley says in Two Wordsworth, figures who were of extraordinary, and Southey too, were figures of extraordinary importance to the next generation of romantics. But then they became middle-aged and conservative, and the next generation was very disappointed by that change. Um, so part of that disappointment you can feel in um, this hilarious dedication. It's also worth noticing how dirty it is. Did you find the poem dirty? In a good way? <laughs> you don't want to say. In a good way, Muriel? <laughs> okay. Um, no, they're bad ways. Um, one of, some, of the, some of the jokes you may not have gotten, but one of them, for example, is um, just stanza three of the dedication. So, well, we can just start um, with the very opening of Don Juan. Um, Bob Southey, he actually probably pronounced it Southey. There's some debate about this, and there's still some debate about what the right way to pronounce it is. Um, but he rhymes with, with Mouthy at one point. Um, so maybe we should say Southey. Bob Southey, you're a poet. Poet laureate and representative of all the race. That is all the race of poets laureate. Although tis true that you've turned out a Tory at last. So what do you think of that rhyme? Laureate and Toriate last. It's not a slant rhyme, it's a perfect yeah, one. It's a perfect rhyme, but it's like, it's very, like, it's fun, it's cute. Yeah, what, so what makes it cute? Just like, how he just like, Toriate last. Yeah, so one of the things that makes this comic, that you can feel immediately that it's comic, is that he gets a rhyme which is so outrageously not like a building block. That is, rhymes almost always, there's one exception that he has some fun with in um, the reading that you did for today, but rhymes almost always in rhymed poetry um, 
almost always a rhymed a rhyme is a word ends with a single word it's very rare that you will hyphenate a word at the end of a line in order to get it to rhyme this is just a fact about rhyme it's such it's so clear a fact that most people don't even notice it or think about it but when you write rhymed poetry each line ends with a word not with the first or second syllable of a word it's very rare that you'll get something like um, anti-rhyming let's say or, or anti-rhyming with um, scanty um, but anti-matter or something like that at the end of a rhyme at the end of a line um, or ant rhyming with um, with uh, slant um, but you would so you would never or almost never get a line that said something like um, and then I saw a rhyme that was slant and I recalled how my English teacher was ant e such rhymes um, that's almost never done um, that fact tells you something about how we process rhyme, which is that we think that when we hear a rhyme, we're also a building block is being moved into place. Um, in closed couplets, what we were contrasting Shelley as Julian and Mandelow to, um, the building blocks are so clear at the end of lines that the line stops. You get to the end of a thought. You get to a pause. You, you get to the end of a clause or sentence. Um, but even in very, very um, fluid rhyming, as in Julian and Madelow, you still end each line with a full word. It's really, really rare. I mean, one in something like 100,000 lines in English poetry are hyphenated at the end of lined poetry. You will almost never find such a hyphenation. Um, really, literally, about one in 100,000 lines will you find a hyphenated line ending. Um, you'll find them much more in songs, but that's because in songs um, there's a whole, um, just, just there are blizzards of rhymes that are being sent, to, sent at you if Stephen Sondheim or Cole Porter or someone like that is writing a song. But in poetry you'll almost never get hyphenated words at the end of a, at the end of a line, especially if it rhymes. Um, so that tells you something that just feels like how we process rhyme. Um, this isn't a hyphenated word either, Tori at, so it ends with at. But the thing is, in our minds, at last is a quasi word. That is, of course, the word at is a word. Um, but you almost never have at just like that. Um, you almost always have at plus the object of that preposition or that adverb, depending on, on what use of at you're using. Um, so you know, although you've turned, although tis true that you've turned out a Tory at last, and the idea of stopping on the at is what makes this funny. So Bob Southey, you're a poet, poet laureate, okay, and representative of all the race, although tis true that you've turned out a Toriate, what's that? Last. And that takes a lot of processing to turn Toriat into Tori at last. Um, and because of that, you see the funniness of it. Although tis true that you've turned out a Tori at last, yours lately has become a common case. And now my epic renegade, where are ye at? With all the Lakers in and out of place, where are the Lakers? 
the lake poets, good. Um, a nest of tuneful persons, to my eye, like four and twenty blackbirds in a pie. Um, so you all recognize that? Sing a song of sixpence? Yeah, okay. Um, there's a little bit of a joke here because there was a poet laureate named Pie, P-Y-E, spelt that way, um, before Southey was poet laureate. Um, just a slight joke, but there it is. So they're all like four and twenty blackbirds in a pie, which pie being opened, they began to sing this old song, a new simile holds good, a dainty dish to set before the king. Um, so he's quoting the old song, but he's putting, notice how he's inserting his own lines between the lines of the song, so that the song has a rhyme scheme, which is A-A, sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was open, the birds began to sing, now wasn't that a jolly dish to set before the king? So that's the song, and it rhymes A-A-B-B-C-C. What he's doing, it's like, it's like he's shuffling cards. So there's a line from the song, and then a line from Byron, commenting on the song. Then the song rhymes again, and then you get Byron's line. So, so you get A-A-B-B-C-C, but now with Byron shuffling his own lines between them, you get A from the song, B from Byron, A from the song again, and B from Byron again. Um, as I mentioned before, and as you'll have noticed, he loves quoting. Um, there he's doing it. Um, or regent, so a dainty dish to set before the king. Or regent, who admires such kind of food. Who's the regent? Anyone know? Why that capital R regent there? No one knows about, have you ever heard of the regency period? It's when Jane Austen's novels are um, talked about as regency novels. Or there's Regency furniture, Regency styles. A word you've never noticed, or you've noticed but you thought, meh, one day I'll come to class and someone will explain this to me? Question mark. Have you ever seen that word? as? So do you know what Georgian means, or Edwardian? If someone talks about Georgian architecture? It, Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, but he's not George the Fourth yet. He's just his son. So do you know why? He became regent. Regent means ruler, the person who was who was governing England, although of course the Prime Minister was governing England, but who was officially governing England. Um, so why is the regent governing England rather than the king? Do you know? He, got, he went crazy. So George III went mad um, several times. There are lots of theories about his madness. There's a play called The Madness of King George, or The Madness of George III, I think is the British title, by Alan Bennett. Um, it's a good movie. Um, it was made into a movie in about the year 2000. But yeah, George went mad. Um, either, well, there, there are lots of different theories. Um, and in the 18-teens, um, when he essentially went mad for the last time, he was um, relieved of his duties. And his son, who was known as the Prince Regent, now became the sort of like vice president official head of state. And so that's called the Regency period. Um, and 
Um, so George is still king, but it's the regent who now would be getting the jolly dish set before the king. So he's making a reference to what's going on in England. Um, you can imagine in 200 years someone reading a joke about the head of state being born in Kenya um, and having no idea what that joke's about. Um, but we would understand what it was about. Um, and then there's Donald Trump and his, um, and his accusations, whatever. Um, those would need footnotes too. So um, the reason that I mention this is because he returns to this joke at the end when he talks about my hot youth when George III was king. So George III is still officially king, but he's making a joke at George's expense by saying he's king, but he's not king. Um, and Coleridge, too, has lately taken wing, but like a hawk encumbered with his hood, explaining metaphysics to the nation. I wish he would explain his explanation. You, Bob, are rather insolent, you know, at being disappointed in your wish to supersede all warblers here below and be the only blackbird in the dish. So what's, um, metaphorically, what's that wish? Yeah, to be the best. Um, he is poet laureate, but he also wants to think of himself as the only poet who matters. To be the only blackbird in the dish. And then you overstrain yourself, or so. So Southey is just writing too hard, working too hard. And then you overstrain yourself, or so, and tumble downward like the flying fish, gasping on deck because you soar too high, Bob and fall for lack of moisture, quite a dry bob. Um, so notice that you don't need the bobs at the end of those lines, right? Gasping on deck because you soar too high, and fall for lack of moisture, quite a dry. Those are iambic pentameter lines. Um, but they have this extra syllable at the end, kind of, which is okay in iambic pentameter. It's sort of um, where you would draw breath. It might be something called a feminine ending. Gasping on death because you soar too high, Bob, and fall for lack of moisture quite a dry, Bob. So why does he do that? Seems pretty demeaning. Yeah, it's totally demeaning. Um, the whole, the whole um, um, dedication is pretty vicious. Um, what's the joke, though? Okay, he falls flat, um, but why can't he just do that like a flying fish and tumble downward like the flying fish, gasping on deck because you soar too high and fall for lack of moisture quite a dry? What might you imagine a dry bob is? No. All right, now put on your dirty-minded hats, your dirty thinking caps. When you're talking about fishing, why is a bob called a bob? Do you know? 
or when boxers bob, what are they doing? Do you know what the verb to bob means? Sorry? Yeah, going up and down. Yeah. So what do you think in an obscene context a dry bob would be? Okay, I think you're getting it. Yeah, so basically he's casting aspersions on Southey's um, potency. Um, he strains, but he's like a gasping, <coughs> flying fish, falling flat, trying too hard, and because of lack of moisture, either his own or his partner's, it's just a dry bob. So you can see why it might not have been such a good idea for him to publish this. But um, you get the joke now? Anyone need more explanation? I could explain my explanation. Okay, you're there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he can be mean, but it is pretty funny. Um, but it's also what's, I think, quite amazing about Don Juan, and this is what I was sort of trying to get us to on, um, on uh, Tuesday, is the quickness with which tone changes in Don Juan, just the rapidity with which he can go from one tone to another. There's almost a music video quality about this, um, or um, a really well done rapid TV show quality about this, which is that he can make these totally obscene puns um, and, real, and say nasty things um, in a whole bunch of stanzas. And then <coughs> um, start talking about <coughs> excuse me, start talking about Milton, <coughs> and his tone totally changes. So if you go to stanza um, five, you well four is Wordsworth, and Wordsworth in a rather long excursion, I think the quarter holds five hundred pages, has given a sample from the vasty version of his new system to perplex the sages. Um, that's because Wordsworth said the excursion is um, just one part of a three-part or perhaps a four-part work that he was going to publish, which, thank goodness, he didn't. Um, Tis poetry, at least by his assertion, and may appear so when the dog star rages, that is, um, in August, um, when mad dogs and Englishmen are out in the noonday sun. Um, and he who understands it would be able to add a story to the Tower of Babel. So you, gentlemen, by dint of long seclusion from better company, have kept your own at Keswick, which is in the Lake District, and through still continued fusion of one another's minds, at last have grown to deem as a most logical conclusion that poesy has reads for you alone. So they believe they're the only poets that matter. And here again, you should see that Byron isn't saying they don't matter. He's saying there are a lot of poets. This is something we'll return to. There is a narrowness in such a notion which makes me wish you'd change your lakes for ocean. I would not imitate the petty thought nor coin my self-love to so base a vice. For all the glory your conversion, that is into being conservative, for all the glory your conversion brought, since go I wouldn't do it for all that glory since gold alone should not have been its price. I would have had to pay more than gold, or, the, or it's more than gold is what the damage would be. You have your salary. was for that you wrought? And Wordsworth has his place in the excise. 
So Southey has a salary as poet laureate. Wordsworth was given a position as, the, as a collector of um, excise taxes. Um, and um, basically, he was a stamp uh, seller. Um, he would sell stamps saying that you paid your taxes. And it was just a job so he could have money. And Byron is outraged that they are kissing um, the asses of the conservative government um, in order to be supported by that government. Your shabby fellows, true, but poets still, and duly seated on the immortal hill. Um, but then he says, but there are all these other poets who we'll see in the future, who prefers them. Um, your bays may hide the baldness of your brows. So you're wearing the laurel bay of the crowned poet, of the poet laureate. That's where the word laureate comes from. <coughs> Perhaps some virtuous blushes also. Maybe you blush at what you've done. Let them go. To you I envy neither fruit nor boughs, and for the fame you would engross below. The field is universal and allows scope to all such as feel the inherent glow. There's enough room for all great poets. And then he lists some other possible great poets. Scott, Rogers, Campbell, Moore, and Crabbe will try against you the question with posterity. That is, here's some other poets, contemporary poets, who might be remembered as being as important as you. In fact, he was wrong. Um, of those poets, Scott, Rogers, Campbell, Moore, and Crabbe, no one reads Rogers or Campbell anymore. And by no one, I really mean almost no one. Um, Scott is, do people know who Scott is? Sir Walter Scott, who's most famous for novels like Ivanhoe. Um, Scott was actually a really, really good poet. Um, pretty, actually a pretty wonderful poet. Um, he wrote, um, you all know at least one verse of Scott's, even though you don't know it's Scott, which is, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Um, and um, another th one you might know is, uh, breathes there a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said, this is mine own, my native land. Um, so those are well-remembered lines of Scott's. They're not his best lines. Um, but he was, he was really pretty remarkable. But when he read Byron, he said, Byron is better than I am. I'm going to write novels. Um, and um, that acknowledgment of what Byron could do is one of the great acknowledgments of one poet to another. But Scott is very much worth reading as a poet. Um, Moore is a friend of Byron's. Um, we saw some of his letters to Moore and um, a poet who still to some extent read, but not much, but was wildly popular at the time. And Crabbe is, was a narrative poet. He actually wrote in closed couplets. Um, if any of you know who Benjamin Britten is, the British composer, um, one of his great operas is Peter Grimes. Do you know it? Um, no, I don't know. Well, so Peter Grimes is actually an opera based on a poem by Crabbe, um, part of a long poem of his called The Village, and Peter Grimes is one of the people who live in the village. Um, and so Crabbe is still remembered and read. But he was wrong. Wordsworth and Coleridge are the ones who are remembered, but not for what they were writing at this time.
But then he turns to himself. But for me, who wandering with pedestrian muses contend not with you on the winged steed, so I walk. I don't contend with you on the winged steed of Pegasus. I wish your fate may yield ye when she chooses the fame you envy and the skill you need. So I hope fate will give you the fame that you wish and also the skill that you would need and that you obviously don't have in order to become famous. And recollect a poet nothing loses in giving to his brethren their full meat of merit. And complaint of present days is not the certain path to future praise. So spending all your time complaining about other poets, that's not how to be a poet. Um, The way to be a poet is to write good poetry. He that reserves his laurels for posterity, that is poets who say, the future will see how great I am. He that reserves his laurel for posterity, who does not often claim the bright reversion, that is, posterity doesn't say, oh yeah, um, those poets are great, has generally no great crop to spare it, he being only injured by his own assertion. And although here and there some glorious rarity arise like Titan from the sea's immersion, the major part of such appellants go to where? He interrupts himself. What's he about to say? Those who think that they'll be saved in the future and remembered as great poets and join some kind of heavenly (coughs) Parnassus of poetry, most of the time they go where? They go to not heaven, but... Yeah, but no, he doesn't want to use that word. So go to, oh, God knows where, for no one else can know. And then we get to Milton. If fallen in evil days on evil tongues, um, those of you who've read Paradise Lost will recognize that that's a quotation from Milton. Milton describes himself as fallen on evil days and evil times. On evil days, though fallen he says, um, though fallen on evil days and evil times, on evil days, though fallen, he still maintains what he's doing. So he's quoting this, although he changes times to tongues. Milton says, with darkness and with dangers compassed round and solitude. That's Milton's description of himself. Um, So Byron accepts that. What happened to Milton was he was, we didn't discuss this much, but he was essentially the foreign secretary for Cromwell when Cromwell um, became the um, Lord Protector, first the head of Parliament and then the Lord Protector of England. So there's the English Revolution against the king of the time, Charles I, began in 1642 and ended with the beheading of Charles I in 1649 by Parliament. And um, a commonwealth was set up without a king. And Parliament ruled England. And um, the rest of Europe thought this was terrible and that it was outrageous and um, treasonous and blasphemous to behead a king. But the English Parliament thought that Charles had committed crimes against the people and against um, um, the English, and they set up a republic. And Milton was essentially the foreign secretary in this republic. 
he was the person who um, represented England to the rest of Europe. Then, 11 years later, at the end, after Charles, after, excuse me, Oliver Cromwell died and his son um, kind of took over as the head of state in England, um, things weren't going well, and Charles II, Charles I's son, who was in exile in France, was invited back to England to restore the monarchy. So if you've, we've already talked about the Regency period, this is known as the Restoration. So if you know what Restoration comedy is, it's comedy written when Charles II, the son of Charles I, was restored to the throne in England. So um, when that happened, Milton, who had written passionately defending the beheading of Charles I, defending his execution, and had published many, many works defending that execution, was in serious trouble as part of the revolutionary government that now had lost all power. And he might have been imprisoned, and in fact, he might have been executed. People intervened with him, for him. He was blind at the time. People intervened for him. But things were ticklish. And once he was out of power, that's when he wrote Paradise Lost, about Satan rebelling against the king, God, and losing in that rebellion. And now Milton describes himself also, much later in Paradise Lost than anything you've read, as fallen on evil days and evil times with darkness and with dangers compassed round and solitude. So Byron accepts that. If fallen in evil days on evil tongues, Milton appealed to the avenger time. If time, the avenger, execrates his wrongs and makes the word miltonic mean sublime. So he's saying miltonic is now a word, that if you call a poem miltonic, you mean it's sublime. He, that is Milton, deigned not to belie his soul in songs, nor turn his very talent to a crime. He did not loathe the sire to laud the son, but closed the tyrant hater he begun. So Milton was true to his revolutionary principles. That's <coughs> what Byron <coughs> excuse me, is saying about him, unlike you guys, you Lakers. Thinkst thou, could he, the blind old man, arise like Samuel from the grave, to freeze once more the blood of monarchs with his prophecies, or be alive again, again all whore with time and trials, and those helpless eyes and heartless daughters, worn and pale and poor, would he adore a sultan? He obey the intellectual eunuch Castlereagh? So Castlereagh is now the foreign secretary in England, and much loathed by the radicals, by the leftists, because he was um, cruel and tyrannical. Um, so notice, what's the difference in tone between a stanza like 11 and a stanza like 3? Now let's, try, let's try something. Um, don't look at the page, just look up. 
Um, and even though you've already just read the stance and you might be able to do this fairly easily, see whether you can. Um, I'm going to read it aloud now. Um, see if you can figure out which the rhyme words are as I read it aloud. Um, Thinkst thou, could he, the blind old man, arise like Samuel from the grave to freeze once more the blood of monarchs with his prophecies or be alive again? Again, all whore with time and trials and those helpless eyes and heartless daughters, worn and pale and poor. Would he adore a sultan? He obey the intellectual eunuch Castlereagh? So obviously, obey and Castlereagh you should hear. What other rhymes can you hear? Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to hear that as rhyming. But it rhymes just as much as, see if you can hear the rhymes here. You, Bob, are rather insolent, you know, at being disappointed in your wish to supersede all warblers here below and be the only blackbird in the dish. And then you overstrain yourself or so and tumble downward like the flying fish gasping on deck because you soar too high, Bob, and fall for lack of moisture, quite a dry bob. So do you think you missed any rhymes there in that one? So notice the amazing difference in diction that both those stanzas have the same rhyme scheme. Do people know what the rhyme scheme is? Um, more. Uh, you added one extra. It's A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C, eight lines. So um, what you get are three A rhymes, three B rhymes, and then two C rhymes in the eight lines there. Um, so it's really hard when you have triple rhymes <coughs> like that not to make them sound like rhymes. But Byron is just so good with his diction and so good with his enjambment that the tone starts sounding like blank verse here, starts sounding like Milton. So even though he's rhyming, we're not hearing the rhymes. And they're there, but we're not hearing them. Um, and that's, that shift in tone is extraordinary. It's just something that I'm, you'll get more sensitized to as you read more of Don Juan. Um, but it's really worth noticing. So thinks thou, now look at it, just again see where the rhymes are. Th stanza 11, thinks thou could he, the blind old man, arise like Samuel from the grave to freeze once more the blood of monarchs with his prophecies or be alive again, again all whore with time and trials and those helpless eyes and heartless daughters, worn and pale and poor, would he adore a sultan? He obeyed the intellectual eunuch Castlereagh. Um, and he has to do that because otherwise these rhymes are comic. It's really hard to write Ottava Rima. He himself is going to say this later without being funny. Um, there's something about triple rhymes that tends to be funny because you think you've gotten the rhyme, but there's still another rhyme to come. Um, do you remember any of your favorite rhymes? Some of you are saying, yeah, I really like these rhymes. Do you remember any other really good ones? One of the most famous of Byron's rhymes is in Canto I of Don Juan. 
All right, let me ask it this way. Um, do you remember what he rhymes the word intellectual with? You could try to, let's say you desperately had to solve this on a test, you could try to come up with your own rhyme. Intellectual. It's not that hard. The obvious rhyme that comes to mind is... Sex is what? Sexual, Sexual yeah. Um, not funny, but it would work. Um, some of our faculties are intellectual, and others, perhaps lower, are all sexual. That would work. It's not Byronic, or it's not, it's, it's not a patch on Byron. Um, it's probably the most famous rhyme in Don Juan. Maybe Juan and New One is, is more famous, but it's up there with that. Go to um, stanza 20. Um... It's a description of Donna Inez and her merits and her good qualities. And um, the narrator of Don Juan is saying that he himself is single, um, <coughs> but also he has a sense of what happens when you have very um, learned women, what are called blue stockings, um, who get involved with men who are not as intelligent as them. So stanza 22, "'Tis pity learned virgins ever wed with persons of no sort of education, or gentlemen who, though well-born and bred, grow tired of scientific conversation. I don't choose to say much upon this head. I'm a plain man and in a single station, that is, his station in life is to be unmarried. But, O oh, ye lords of ladies intellectual, inform us truly, have they not... Say it. Rhyme it. Henpectual? Yeah. So, um, what's good about that rhyme? Forget the sexism of it. What's good about the rhyme? Okay, so first of all, it's separate words that, that come into the rhyme. Um, you, what you get are hand-pecked one word, but even that one word is really made of two. Um, and um, it's only the second syllable of hand-pecked, at any rate, that's part of the rhyme. The rhyme is lectual and pectual. pectual. Um, and the diction is so different. Intellectual is a kind of abstract, um, formal word. And then henpectual is just is this vivid, funny, um, what's called hudibrastic, <coughs> putting together a bunch of different words to make up a single rhyming unit. Like, yeah, toriat, although you become a toriat to rhyme with laureate. Um, but here it's even more outrageous. And that, the, just think again of, um, or let me just say something about the structure of Atava Rima. Byron is going to reflect on it later. He talks it talks about it as a structure for comic rhyme. Um, 
But the structure is basically you have these three pairs of rhymes, A, B, A, B, A, B, and then you have a couplet, which ends the stanza. And the couplet will often be what's very funny. That is that um, uh, something has to just sum everything up. And it's almost as though the first six lines are a setup, as you can see they are here, for a couplet, <coughs> which will then be funny. Um, and he does that over and over again. Um, is the couplet, you get a change or a deflation or a turn from whatever might sound serious in what's coming on before. Yeah? Um, what did you say that it's called when he makes up the rhyming? When he... Like intellectual and textual. Yeah, it's called a hudibrastic. And the reason is that there is a poem by, um, from the 17th century called Hudibras, where the rhymes, a comic poem from the 17th century called Hudibras by Samuel Butler, where the rhymes are um, put together that way and are funny. I mean, the limerick rhymes are like that also. It's the kind of thing that you would do in a limerick. Um, what do you rhyme with Nantucket, for example? Um, and it's not a three-syllable word that you rhyme with Nantucket. You have to put some other words together um, to come up with the rhymes for Nantucket. Um, to allude to the most famous of all limericks. Um, so those are called, yeah, those are called hudibrastic. Okay, let's just talk about the plot. Let's do a little plot summary. What's the plot of um, the first canto of Don Juan? Okay, background. Um, what's the background? Yeah. Yeah, good guess. So people thought. Anyone? Julia. Good. And what's the age difference between Julia and Juan? <coughs> yeah, who's older? Yeah. So that's fine when <coughs> um, she's 16 and he's 10. Um, but what happens when he's 16? <coughs> or she's 17? <coughs> and he's 10, no problem. But when he's 16 and she's 23, then what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so what happens? Yeah, so um, basically you get this description of the very innocent Don Chu, and he doesn't really know um, what's going on. He's just 16. Um, and here's Julia, who finds him very attractive. But what does she imagine about herself? Yeah, that... Just friends, yeah. That they can have a platonic relationship. 
Um, that's several times her idea. Um, then she finds herself attracted to him, so she prays to whom? Yeah, good. And what does she pray? She decides, I'm too attracted to him. This is bad. I'm a married woman, um, and I can't let this happen to me. Um, so she prays to the Virgin. She decides, um, okay, she's just going to stay out of his way. She's, gonna tr- she's not going to see him, and she prays to the Virgin to keep him out of um, her way so that nothing happens. And what happens to her prayers? Sorry? Well, no, someone comes to the door, but it's not him. So she, she then goes to visit Donna Inez, um, and she's confident that the Virgin will um, meet her prayers. And then the door opens, and who does it not turn out to be? This is an easy question. Who does it not turn out to be? It turns out not to be Don Juan. So how does she feel about that? Yeah. Um, Let's see if we can find this. Um, This is... um, Yeah. Yeah, that's where it starts. Um, so in 74, stuff is happening. Then there were sighs, the deeper for suppression, and stolen glances, sweeter for the theft, and burning blushes, though for no transgression. So she's thinking about him. Tremblings when met, and restlessness when left. All these are little preludes to possession, of which young passion cannot be bereft, and merely show, and merely tend to show how greatly love is embarrassed at first starting with a novice. So they're both novices. They don't really know (coughs) what's going on. But he, the narrator, does know. Uh, The narrator, I just want to say this. I mean, this is going to become clear to you as you read more. The narrator is in no way a consistent character. Um, That's not part of the point. It's not, you have a narrator who says, well, I knew the parents, you know, I sometimes saw Juin, I didn't really know what was going on. He sometimes pretends to be very foolish and unknowing. At other times, he's Byron himself. And he just morphs in and out of different different, um, ways of relating to the story that he's telling. And that's perfectly fine. He's not a character. Um, He will actually be on ship with Don Juin. And at that point, that's where he feels like he's most present. But mainly his relation to the story is something like Byron's to Harold. Um, Sometimes he talks in full voice. It really is Byron who's talking. Um, And even at the end of the first canto, um, he starts saying, oh, I'm so old now. Look, I'm almost 30. I wonder what I'll look like when I'm 40. And sometimes he just pretends to be some guy from Seville who happened to know some of the family. Um, And that's part of his charm. But here he knows plenty about what sex is like. So now he describes poor Julia. Poor Julia's heart was in an awkward state. She felt it going and resolved to make the noblest efforts for herself and mate, for honors, 
prides, religions, virtues sake. Her resolutions were most truly great and almost might have made a Tarquin quake. She prayed the Virgin Mary for her grace as being the best judge of a lady's case. That is because the Virgin Mary is um, a woman, so too um, she would understand the situation Julia was in. So then she makes a vow. She vowed she would never, excuse me, she vowed she never would see Juan more. And next day paid a visit to his mother. Um, so why does she visit Juan's mother? Sorry? Yeah, yeah, but with plausible <coughs> deniability. She's involved in self-deception. I'm never going to see him again. Let me just go visit his mother because, you know, she's a friend of mine. Um, and looked extremely at the opening door, which, by the Virgin's grace, let in another. So she's visiting Donna Inez, and they're having tea, and the door opens, and she looks extremely at the opening door, but yay for the Virgin Mary. It wasn't Juan. She meets Julia's prayers. Isn't that great? That's what Julia wanted, and she meets those prayers, which by the Virgin's grace laid in another. Grateful she was. Oh, thank goodness it's not Juan. And yet a little sore. Um, so I imagine one or two of you might have once or twice in your life been in this position of telling yourself that you really, really, really don't want someone to show up right now and then being really, really, really upset when they keep not showing up, which is what you really, really, really wanted them to do, namely not show up. So that's the position she's in. Oh, thank goodness. I'm so grateful it's not June. I was really worried. And yet, she seems a little sore. Again it opens. It can be no other. Tis surely Juan now. No, I'm afraid that <coughs> night the virgin was no further prayed. So what happened? She goes home that night. Juan hasn't shown up. She goes to visit Donna Inez. Juan hasn't shown up. She goes home that night and... She doesn't pray anymore that the Virgin will um, keep Juan out of her way. Um, she now has a different theory. <laughs> she now determined that a virtuous woman should rather face and overcome temptation, that flight was base and dastardly, and no man should ever give her heart the least sensation, <clears throat> that is to say, a thought beyond the common preference that we must feel upon occasion for people who are pleasanter than others, but then they only seem so many brothers. So what's her next idea about how she'll be virtuous with Juan? Test herself. Test herself, yeah. You know, it would actually be good to see Juan um, because that way I won't be fearful. I'll overcome temptation. And besides, I don't really feel anything for him. Yeah, he's pleasant. Um, so why should I deny myself that pleasantness? But um, I'm not going to feel anything the least sensation beyond that. <clears throat> and even if by chance, and who can tell the devil's so very sly, she should discover that all within was not so very well, and if still free, that such or such a lover might please perhaps. So if she allowed herself the idea that if she weren't married, Juan would be okay. Um, well, a virtuous wife can quell such thoughts and be the better when they're over. And if this man should ask, tis but denial, 
So if he should say to her, you know, well, do you want to do something? It's easy for her to deny him. And now Byron makes a recommendation to young women. I recommend young ladies to make trial. So why is he making that recommendation? He's Byron. Why would he want women to test themselves? Yeah. Here, what, look, we should just hang out and you can test your virtue. I think that's a good idea. You know, what I'll do is I'll say, do you want to, like, you know, have sex? And you can say no, and then you'll feel good about yourself. So what do you say? Um, so that's his recommendation. And then there are these other things. And then this is um, the way Julia's thinking again. And then there are such things as love divine, bright and immaculate, unmixed and pure, such as the angels think so very fine, and matrons who would be no less secure, platonic, perfect. Just such love as mine, thus Julia said and thought so, to be sure. So now she's saying, well, okay, I do love him, but it's platonic, perfect. We're just such close friends. That's the kind of love I feel for him. Just such love as mine, thought Julia, and thought so, to be sure. And so I'd have her think, were I the man on whom her reveries celestial ran? So, yeah, if she were thinking, oh, I love him, but it's all platonic, what Byron is saying is, yeah, I wish you would think that about me. Um, that would be good. Um, such love is innocent and may exist between young persons without any danger. A hand may first and then a lip be kissed. For my part, to such doings, I'm a stranger. But here these freedoms form the utmost list of all or which such love may be a ranger. If people go beyond, it's quite a crime, but not my fault. I tell them all in time. Um, so he's all very virtuous. Um, so... She decides on love within its proper limits and that it's all innocent and feasible in stanza 83 and it will all be okay. Um, and so she's tormenting herself about all this. Um, and... Um, let's now look at, at um, how Juin is feeling. Um, young Juan, this is at stanza 90 now, young Juan wandered by the glassy brooks thinking unutterable things. Um, yeah, I think we can just start there. Young Juan wandered by the glassy brooks thinking unutterable things. He threw himself at length within the leafy nooks where the wild branch of the cork forest grew. There poets find materials for their books. And every now and then we read them through so that their plan, that is, um, if it's the case, we'll read them through if on the condition so that their plan and prosody are eligible unless, like Wordsworth, they prove unintelligible. Um, so Jewin went to places that poets go and where poets find material for their books. Oh, it's also poetic. He, Jewin and not Wordsworth, 
<laughs> just in case you thought I was going to talk about Wordsworth now. <coughs> he, Jewin and not Wordsworth, so pursued his self-communion with his own high soul until his mighty heart in its great mood had mitigated part, though not the whole of its disease. He did the best he could with things not very subject to control and turned, without perceiving his condition like Coleridge, into a metaphysician. And here's what Jewin thought. Um, he thought about himself and the whole earth, of man the wonderful and of the stars and how the deuce they ever could have birth. So he's thinking high adolescent thoughts. But is he really thinking to himself, how the deuce could they have, could they have birth? What do you think of that tonally? How the deuce they ever could have birth? That is, where do the stars come from? Would those be the words Jewin thought? If you were writing about an idealistic adolescent thinking about the stars and the earth and, and humanity, would you write that line and how the deuce they ever could have birth? Yeah. It's, he's cruder than the person he's describing. So how the deuce they ever could have birth is just, that's not the right diction for the adolescent, um, the wonderful adolescent idealism that he's describing here. Um, and yet it's right, because what he's noticing is that that idealism is what's sometimes, sometimes called sublimation. Have you guys seen, have any of you seen um, This is Spinal Tap, the, the first mockumentary? Um, do you know about it? Okay, so Sp Spinal Tap is a kind of uh, 70s punkish new wave, but also glam band. And this is, uh, it's Rob Reiner did this movie, and it's a, it's, a, it's a faux documentary, a fictional documentary about this band. And um, some of it sounds like this. There's a very famous per uh, moment where um, one of the band members is just playing around on the piano and he says, I, you know this one, right? He says, I think there's nothing so beautiful as E minor. And he's just playing um, a run of, of notes in E minor. And uh, the interviewer says, wow, that's really beautiful. It's really sad and melancholy. Um, what do you call that song? Um, and you can look up the rest. Um, and then he thought of earthquakes and of wars how many miles the moon might have in girth, so what's the uh, moon's circumference, of air balloons and of the many bars to perfect knowledge of the boundless skies. And then he thought of Donna Julia's eyes. So he's trying to think of anything at all that he can think of, but what he comes back to is Donna Julia's eyes. In thoughts like these, true wisdom may discern longing sublime and aspirations high, which some are born with, but the most part learn to plague themselves with all they know not why. T'was strange that one so young should thus concern his brain about the action of the sky. If you think t'was philosophy that this did, I can't help thinking puberty assisted. So he's spending all this time thinking about the sky because what he's really thinking about is um, what he's trying to stop himself from thinking about. He poured upon the leaves and on the flowers and heard a voice in all the, <coughs> all the winds. And then he thought of wood nymphs and immortal bowers. 
and how the goddess as excuse me and how the goddesses came down to men. He missed the pathway, he forgot the hours, and when he looked upon his watch again, he found how much old time had been a winner. He also found that he had lost his dinner. Um, so what are the you're smiling, what are the two words that are surprising there? The first five lines could easily be from Child Harold. But then Byron does a little um, parodic twist. What's the first word that's a surprise? Okay, winner, maybe. I think even before that, watch. That is, you're not describing someone who's got a watch when you talk about someone who is pouring upon the leaves and on the flowers and heard a voice in all the winds. You know, this is, this is poetic mythology. The idea that the person doing this also has a watch with them um, and that after a while they'll look at their watch and see what time it is, that's just wrong. Of course, in real life, you would if you ever, I mean, if you, you have a watch. Most, of you, most people of your generation don't have watches, right? Um, you just look at your cell phones. But um, of course, if you go walking you know, in nature and give yourself to the wind and the stars and so on, <coughs> you might have a watch with you. But that's not how you would describe yourself. I am a person with a watch, giving myself to the wind and the stars and the grasses and um, the infinite um, light that falls through the universe. And oh my goodness, I'm late for dinner. Um, so just the way Byron can do that with a single word, that's worth noticing. He poured upon the leaves and on the flowers and heard a voice in all the winds. And then he thought of wood nymphs and immortal bowers and how the goddesses came down to men he missed the pathway. He forgot the hours. And when he looked upon his watch again, he found out he found how much old time had been a winner. He also found that he had lost his dinner. Um, so there he is. And um, <coughs> in the meantime, now go. let's go to 107. Um, here's Julia again. It's, anyone remember the date? June 6th. Good. So it's the 6th of June. Um, and um, he's sitting with Julia in a bower and go to line one oh, uh, go to stanza 106. Um, how beautiful she looked. Her conscious heart glowed in her cheek, and yet she felt no wrong. Oh, love, how perfect is thy mystic, par is thy mystic art, strengthening the weak and trampling on the strong. How self-deceitful, and that's the whole point here, is her self-deceit, and his. How self-deceitful is the sagest part of mortals whom thy lure hath led along. So love tricks us by um, making us deceive ourselves, believe that what we want is something platonic. The precipice she stood on was immense, so was her creed and her own innocence. So she's about to fall, but she believes she won't. She thought of her own strength. I'm not going to fall, she thought. I'm strong. She thought of her own strength and Juin's youth and of the folly of all prudish fears. Because she's strong, why should she be um, so prudish as not to hang out with him? Victorious virtue and domestic truth. She thought of all those important things, but then she had another thought. And then of Don Alfonso's 50 years. So what's wrong with that thought? 
yeah, he's more than twice as old as she is. And suddenly she thinks she's married to a guy who could be her father. And then she thought of Don Alfonso's 50 years. And then the narrator tells us, I wish these last had not occurred in sooth because that number rarely much endears. So 50 is a kind of big number, he's saying. And through all climes, the snowy and the sunny sounds ill in love, whate'er it may in money. So you never want the word 50 in a love context, is what he's saying. Um, in all climes, snowy and sunny, um, 50 doesn't sound so good. And remember in um, what happens in sunny climes, what, the, what men call gallantry, and the god's adultery is much more common. Do you remember where? Yeah, where the weather's sultry. So the rhyme is adultery and sultry. Um, and so now he reflects on the word 50. When people say, I've told you 50 times, they mean to scold, and very often do. So 50 is a big number. When poets say, I've written 50 rhymes, they make you dread that they'll recite them. Two, in gangs of 50, thieves commit their crimes. At 50, love for love is rare, tis true. But then no doubt it equally as true as a good deal may be bought for 50 louis. So those are French coins. Um, so let's go um, to stanza 114. Um, so here it's still June 6th. The sun has just set. The yellow moon has come up. Um, and we get there's a dangerous silence in that hour, a stillness which leaves room for the full soul to open all itself without the power of calling wholly back its self-control. So you can open, but it's going to be very hard to call back your self-control if you do it. The silver light which hallowing tree and tower sheds beauty and deep softness o'er the whole breathes also to the heart and o'er it throws a loving languor, which is not repose. And Julia sat with Juan, half embraced and half retiring from the glowing arm, which trembled like the, like the bosom which was placed. Yet still she must have thought there was no harm, or else twere easy to withdraw her waist. But then the situation had its charm, and then, God knows what next. I can't go on. I'm almost sorry that our air begun. So he scandalized. And so now we have a little address to Plato and the idea of platonic love. Oh, Plato, Plato, you have paved the way with your confounded fantasies to more immoral conduct by the fancied sway your system feigns or the controlless core of human hearts than all the long array of poets and romancers. So Plato has caused more amorous relationships, more illicit sex than any poet because Plato convinced people they could control themselves, which poets never thought. And people can't. The controlless core of human hearts. People can't stop themselves once they are sliding down into seduction. You're a bore, he says to Plato, a charlatan, a coxcomb, and have been at best no better than a go-between. And Julia's voice was lost, except in sighs, until too late for, for useful conversation, the tears were gushing from her gentle eyes. I wish indeed they had not had occasion. But who, alas, can love and then be wise? Not that remorse did not oppose temptation. So she felt bad about it. 
a little still she strove and much repented and whispering, I will near consent, consented. So this is often misremembered as Juan um, insisting that she has sex with him and her saying no, um, but in fact wanting it. So this is often um, quoted as a moment which you should really be careful about because no means no. But she's not saying to Juan, I shall near consent. Um, she's saying that to herself. She's saying, okay, we're getting really close and I'm having a really good time, but I'm going to stop when I want to. And she's struggling with herself. And she's saying no to herself, not to him, but then she consents. Um, and the reason I say that, the reason that, that I just want to um, stress that is because Juan throughout is going to be um, and is a very passive person. People fall in love with him all the time. Um, he's one version and probably a fairly true version of um, something that happened to Byron himself. He was so attractive um, that, and he was also had such a reputation for his own um, sexual um, presence um, that people were always wanting to have sex with him, um, both males and females, um, were always wanting to have sex with him. And the way he's representing himself to the extent that Don Juan is like Byron, um, he was probably um, sexually abused, if that's the right term, when he was um, nine or ten by um, the... Uh, caregiver, the female caregiver who was supposed to be taking care of him. Um, so he was this idea of an older woman seducing him, that happens in his own life as well when he was very, very young. But he was much more, even though he's, as you can tell from the letters and from um, uh, a lot of his other descriptions, even though he was a very seductive person, he was also a very seduced person. And he didn't mind being seduced. But um, he's at least representing himself and representing the women in Don Juan um, as figures who are not simply the objects of a Lothario. That is, oh, there's a woman, I think I'm going to have sex with her. But rather, what we're getting, as we do through Julius, we're getting a whole lot from the point of view of the women who are attracted to him. And I think Byron um, is really good at giving them a lot of interiority and depth. In fact, a lot more interiority and depth than Juan himself has. Um, and that's, for someone who's mad, bad, and dangerous to know and is sort of felt to be the, the prince of sexist poets, um, I think this is an important counter um, um, perspective to keep in mind. Um, you'll see more of this in the later cantos, which, by the way, are shorter than this one. So if you haven't finished, as I suspect some of you may not have, if you haven't finished Canto 1, finish it and read Canto 2 for Tuesday. And have a good weekend.